I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jonathan Bakhtari, CEO and Chief Medical Officer of E7 Health, a preventative health and wellness company based in Nevada. Before launching a series of private health ventures, Dr. Bakhtari treated patients as a triple board certified physician specializing in internal medicine, pulmonary medicine, and critical care medicine. In 2021, E7 Health released a study on do not resuscitate, or better known as DNR, orders in the American healthcare system. Analyzing peer-reviewed data from the CDC, American Heart Association, and Harvard Medical School over the past 20 years, the study found that the presence of DNR orders is increasingly connected to elevated death rates, poor medical care, and other negative health outcomes. Today, I'm going to talk with Dr. Bakhtari about these results in the context of Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Dr. Bakhtari, welcome to Dementia Matters. Thank you so much for having me. What an honor. Thank you. You launched E7 Health in 2009, and before then, you were a physician seeing patients, leading in administrative roles and teaching medical students. How did your experiences throughout your career bring you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's uh, it was a classic story of one door opening up another door, you know, just always trying to get involved in, in more things, both administratively from quality control, from patient advocacy, and just appeared that as I progressed in my career, one door, you know, you go through one door and then something else opens up. And it was just a series of events that led me here, uh, so to speak. Was DNR something of particular interest to you because of your clinical experience? Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, rounding on 10, 20 ICU patients every day for many, many years. Obviously, it was, you know, a combination of DNR, and we could talk about withdrawing life support and palliative care, you know, which have some overlap but are somewhat different. Yeah, it became uh, it became really important, not only as, as a tool to prevent suffering, but also honoring people's wishes in the right cases, um, and uh, throughout that experience, I did see, you know, um, a variation of how DNR was applied, how often it was applied, and part of that was the patient population, and you know, um, and just talking to my colleagues across the country, you know, uh, in certain parts of the country, institutional biases uh, in terms of how to approach it, how often to use it, and so when I talked to my uh, my colleagues. Across the country, yeah, there was a there was a considerable discrepancy, which um, was pretty noticeable. And we're going to get into that too. But to set the stage for our listeners, I want to ask some general questions for you. Sure. What does DNR actually mean, and when is it used in healthcare? Right. So, DNR, what it really means, um, of course, stands for "Do Not Resuscitate," and I think it has really three components. You know, do not resuscitate um, applies to initially, for uh, for example, if your heart stops, in which case we would do CPR, a combination of CPR, what we call ACLS protocol, and potentially shock. Those three things happen essentially when your heart stops. 
So um, those have you know, uh, potential side effects as benefits potentially. And so people need to understand what CPR involves, what it means, the risk of CPR, uh, the r- risk of ACLS, uh, you know, giving epinephrine and what have you and following the ACLS protocol and other drugs, um, as well as, you know, shocking the heart in, if certain rhythms um, call for it. So people need to understand what that is. That's one thing. The next thing is really intubation, which is putting an airway into someone's throat uh, to breathe for them and the pros and cons of having that done and the benefits uh, in certain situations. And then lastly, uh, to using vasopressors, which is epinephrine or norepi, uh, levofed, all those medications that we give through a vein that often require a central line, what have you. So classically, you know, those are the things that fall under DNR. And theoretically, people can pick and choose out of those. You know, some people say, well, you know, I don't want CPR and ACLS and shock, and I don't want to be intubated, but I wouldn't mind having pressors. So th- there are combinations of that. So that's CPR, which is really different than withdrawing life support and which is slightly different than palliative care. And when DNR is applied, so I think it really broadly falls into two categories. Certain people choose DNR even when they're healthy. I've seen 30-year-olds and 40 and 50-year-olds you know, just say, hey, I do not want these heroics in case I'm in a uh, tough situation where there's very little hope. And then lastly, you see it when patients come to the hospital and something catastrophic has happened and then the discussion is made with the patient or sometimes, you know, for example, with dementia patients or patients who are just incapacitated, we have that discussion with significant others. Uh, So I think broadly speaking, although there's a middle road too, uh, there are people who just don't want it, but there are other people who don't want it once they get diagnosed with something. Um, and so th- it's not always the same how you see a DNR status uh, come come to being. And a DNR order can always change, isn't that right, over time? Someone could yeah, stop, right, reverse right, a DNR decision. Right. You can, you can withdraw the decision any time. I mean, in certain states, you know, there, there's this thing called DNR suspension. So you can suspend DNR while you're having surgery uh, theoretically in the pre- and post-operative period. But yes, by and large, you can revoke it and you can restate it anytime you want. And of course, then as a critical care doctor, can you have a DNR order while being in the ICU? Oh, clearly. Yeah. I mean, because remember, DNR in the most traditional sense is do not resuscitate me essentially if my heart or lung stops. But you can get all sorts of care in the ICU which don't involve CPR or intubation. I'm glad you answered it that way too because I'm trying to make the point though, in order for a DNR order to be acted upon, you actually have to die, right? Your heart has to stop beating and you have to stop breathing. Right. And I think we're we're probably leading up to the rub where that's not often how it's interpreted. But in the most classic sense, yes, it would only apply if your heart and lungs stop, which is different than palliative care, where you direct, I don't want, I don't want any kind of care or certain kind of care. Okay, so then, so despite what you've explained to us, you know, having this DNR order is not really as straightforward as your explanation, uh, and so there's evidence that hospitals administer fewer blood tests, IV and routine procedures in individuals with DNR orders. 
which is not really a part of the order itself. So, so you and the E7 Health team did a study analyzing DNR orders in U.S. healthcare. What exactly did you find in this study? Well, you know, I, I can probably break it up into two kind of, um, I don't want to say shocking, but uh, yeah, very uh, cause for concern. One was simply the attitudes of healthcare workers. And this is such an easy test to do. You could do it at University of Wisconsin tomorrow, where you just take 100 nurses or 100 doctors, give them a clinical situation where a patient presents with something, and and just mention on one, you know, A and B version of the same scenario. In the B version mentioned, by the way, the patient was DNR. And then list the whole series of things would they offer the patient, a blood transfusion, a surgical consult. So this is not something that is very hidden. Anyone can figure this out pretty quickly, that the medical staff, including residents, attendings, and nurses, you know, view DNR, not all of them, but there's a statistically significant that they view DNR as some level of do not offer treatment or do not intervene in other things that have nothing to do with the DNR status. So that's simply, I I think you can't get away from that. that. That's true in Wisconsin. It's probably true in New York and Florida and what have you. So there is a how we got here is a more interesting discussion, but clearly the staff, you know, um, appears that there's a tendency for them not to offer things. Um, or even, you know, like if you're rounding on a patient and you're a, a subspecialist, you say, oh, well, that person's DNR, I'll only round on him three times a week. So there's even subtle things, it's not even just, um, you know, or if you have a busy day, who are you not going to round on? Again, I'm talking about like as consultants, and you know, so you're the surgery consultant on a DNR patient who's following up on something. So I think it takes many shapes and forms. So that's number one. Number two is actually looking at mortality, and so some of these studies are pretty clear that there is a, when 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 everything else is factored in that DNR patients uh, sometimes you know have a higher mortality for elective procedures for emergency uh, surgeries. Uh, and just the, even just coming into the hospital for certain illnesses. So I think, you know, when when you factor in, you know, their, their health of DNR and non-DNR patients and age and all those other things, there still appears to be a discrepancy. And honestly, we stopped after, you know, you know, eight, nine, 10 studies, but we could have gone, the literature is just so full of it. It's actually, I think the issue is every study looks at like at stroke patients and another it looks as elective surgeries, but if someone took all of those studies and put them together, it, the 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 pattern is indisputable. And so I know your study didn't look specifically at people living with mild cognitive impairment or dementia, but how do you mm-hmm. feel like these findings impact these these individuals or people who have progressive conditions? Well, are you talking about their these people with cognitive dysfunctions in terms of their ability to make the decision or what happens to them after they make the decision? Actually, I'd like you to answer both of those questions. Right. So I think obviously the ability to make the decision, it will be hampered because the solution we're coming up with is to be upfront and say, you know, if you become DNR and you have elective surgery 
or 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 emergency surgery, you may not you know you may not do as well if you're DNR. So factor that into your decision. And I think the ability for people to factor that into their decision obviously would be hampered by their ability to fully comprehend what that means. So, uh, so then you, you'd be talking about, you know, maybe potentially talking to their family, uh, which, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, the more satellite view question is, you know, does this mean we should get rid of DNR? And obviously DNR helps so many people that that's not the answer. The answer is to address the small subgroup of people who this impacts negatively. Although, you know, if, if you really look at DNR, if DNR was a drug or a medical procedure, it would be taken off the market. Because if, if you know, if 10% of people who got the COVID vaccine died, the fact that it helps 90% of people is almost immaterial. All right. If I came up with a new, um, you know, migraine medication that killed 2% of the people it took, I couldn't make the argument, but it's helping 98% of people. So if it was simply a drug or a procedure and needed FDA approval, it would probably be taken off the market. I mean, it, it, we, we, I mean, we have a different bar for, for DNR than we do for other stuff. But in all fairness, because it does really alleviate so much suffering, because, you know, in the 90-whatever percent that it helps, it's, I, I couldn't imagine those patients not having it. And imagine the amount of pain and suffering we would cause in the end of life or let's say. Uh, so it's really, a, it's almost a, a philosoph- philosophical issue because I don't think anyone can dispute that there's a subset of patients that are getting hurt by this. Uh, but I think, you know, those, who, who, those of us who've been in the trenches and have practiced clinical medicine for 20 years can't imagine, you know, going without it. Uh, but it, it is, it is kind of eye-opening to kind of step back and say, you know, we're hurting a significant subpopulation, subset. And so the answer to that is, you know, not to get rid of the drug, not to get rid of the procedure, but to figure out how we can address that subset that's getting hurt. And so do you think that in addressing that, is it a matter of culture change and education for healthcare providers? But also when I read your report, it made me think of the importance of advanced care planning and talking to patients and their families in advance, well in advance, years ahead of time, to ask what is meaningful to you to make sure that they're really informed when they make decisions like yeah, this. Yeah, but the, the thing you really want to, if you really want to inform them, you have to come clean and say, while this may benefit you and alleviate suffering and everything else, there's a small likelihood that this will also give you less care that's unrelated to your decision. Think of it almost like a side, potential side effect of it. And just like when we give someone uh, you know, a medicine and say, well, there's a you know, 10% chance this antibiotic will give you diarrhea, you know, can you live with that? So I think one is really informing them. I don't, I don't think we can say like if you make if you really think about it hard these things won't happen to you i think the, the the real issue is on the on the clinical world which is we have to uh make sure people understand that dnr does not mean do not treat no you're i mean i think that's that's the huge part of it and so does that and certainly on healthcare the healthcare side making sure that that is happening people are being treated do you think that also means that I'm again putting on my my geriatric hat and my mm-hmm. my memory care hat? 
that also means really empowering advocates and family members to to speak for their loved ones who might not right. fully understand uh, the situation and demand that care. I, I, think you, I think you hit the nail on the head to to just say, hey, just because my relative is DNR, you know, does not mean you know don't do the blood cultures, don't get a surgical consult, uh, you know, don't don't not round on him every day, you know. Um, but again, I think we're that, of course, that's going to help. But the real onus is on the medical world. But the real problem is not that. The real, med- the real thing is that people in the medical world don't recognize this problem. I mean, I searched the literature to see if anyone else but us had connected all these dots. And I, I, I there was one, you know, article I saw that, you know, kind of made it into the, um, the media. I think in the New York Post a, a few years ago. Aside from that, the medical community does not acknowledge that it exists, and I, I don't think they're hiding it. I, I just the awareness is not there. And so, if you approach, if you went to a medical conference and brought that up, I, I don't think you'd get a lot of heads shaking. Oh yes, we've heard about this, and this is an issue. So you can't begin to correct it. You know, medical schools can't begin to drum it into residents and medical students' heads if if no one is discussing it and acknowledging that's a problem. So an opportunity to speak to your audience and other audiences is really helpful. But I think I can't. We, we can't just be uh, you know just one person or one group of people bring it up. If we want to change, the medical community has to acknowledge that there is a perception problem that some people view DNR as do not treat or some level do not treat. So then what's next for E7 Health? What, what are you going to do with this? The, these powerful results? What, what is the next project for you? Um, you know, I, I think it's, I think in fact, we're just uh, about to do uh, another podcast on this and which is really, you know, I think in our first study, we, we talked about the problem and I think focusing on what we just talked about, uh, the solution is, I think, our, our next level because it's all good and fine to point out a pattern that's very obvious. And again, I want to reiterate, I mean, every study I, that we looked at, uh, they, stu- they all often referred to five other studies <laughs> that corroborated what they were saying. So it, we just got exhausted after that. There were so many more that if somebody literally, I don't know what the true number is, but there may be a hundred peer-reviewed articles on this, that if anyone really put it all together, you know, it'd be very, very uh, difficult to refute. But the question then becomes, okay, let's, now that we've established it, let's be an advocate for a solution. And so then now I'm going to ask you to put on your, your care hat. So as a critical care physician, and you've seen people survive and pass away in the ICU. What do you want people to know about CPR and DNR orders? Well, I mean, l- let's talk about, you know, it, let's say you have a terminal illness uh, and, you know, the, that CPR and, and do, not resusc- do not resuscitate is unlikely to significantly change the course of your disease. You know, people need to understand CPR is not without side effects. You know, often we break ribs when doing CPR uh, to the level that the person's conscious. It's not, it's, it's painful potentially. Uh, and then when we do, uh, you know, ACLS, you know, we give certain drugs which have side effects. They're not without side effects. 
And then, when, you know, when you shock someone, you know, taking, I think people have seen that on TV, you know, where, you know, the paddles are taking to someone's and the body sort of jumps up. Um, and so these are not innocuous therapies. So clearly, if they're futile and they're not going to impact the patient's eventual outcome, uh, and study after study has shown, like, you know, if you do, CPR and someone with a malignancy in the hospital, their chance of leaving the hospital is almost zero. I mean, so it can't see CPR and ACLS and shock and intubation on some level can be viewed as futile care, where at best we're extending suffering and not extending life. So this is why it's so beneficial to people understand. And it goes to many other things, you know, like the, the statistics, and maybe you, you're you more familiar with this, that, you know, people often spend two-thirds of their total life healthcare dollars within the last month or two of life. I think it goes to that because at a certain point, we provide all this very aggressive uh, care uh, that's futile, but we do it because the circumstances calls out for it. So... I think that's the first thing to realize. You know, it's easy to kind of walk away from this interview and say, "Oh, DNR is bad." No, no, no. It's really amazing, and you know, to, it's um, you know, you wouldn't do uh, you know open heart surgery on somebody who uh, you know wouldn't benefit from it, uh, you know, just because you can do it. So I think it's important to understand that too. I, I want to be balanced. Uh, so, de- and, and intubation, you know, intubation has a lot of side effects. You know, we can cause barotrauma when we insert the ET tube. Uh, you know, being uh, intubated requires often you be paralyzed or heavily, heavily sedated, uh, and there are complications associated with that. So, DNR is not the kind of care where we just want to throw at someone. And, you know, we have the technology, we have the technology to keep someone you know, theoretically alive for weeks or months with absolutely no hope of them ever leaving the ICU or hospital. So I I hope that puts it in perspective why DNR is so important. Uh, But the flip side is just because it's it's important doesn't mean we can't address that subset of population that is hurting. What advice do you have for patients or family members of patients who are admitted to the hospital with DNR, at least things for them to think about? I mean, I think what I would probably, you know, the advice that I I didn't get to is, you know, if people feel that they're being admitted to the hospital for a reason that doesn't connect to their their original request to be a DNR. So let's say you, you know, you, you have dementia and you want to be DNR and you get admitted because you have a ruptured appendix. You know, because one of the things that these studies pointed out is, let's say you have post-operative complications from a procedure that has nothing to do with the reason you were DNR. We see from these studies that people will not treat the natural post-operative complications of a procedure that has nothing to do with your DNR. So what I would say to, uh, you know, especially people who don't have the cognitive awareness, but certainly their families, to simply say, okay, uh, you know, my relative is DNR, but on this hospital stay, I want to revoke it uh, because th- this, uh, you know, this person's here for a ruptured appendix that has nothing to do with 
whatever else. So because this is the part that families are going to have a hard time controlling, you know, especially post-procedure or, or what have you. Complications occur in a certain percentage of every, you know, moderate surgeries. And you don't want to be to fall in the category where you had a natural complication of the surgery. You know, like for example, sometimes when people, let's just say, uh, you know, appendicitis, you know, uh, they may have to go in a second time because, you know, the wound dehist or something like that versus, uh, you know, versus that may not be offered to someone who's DNR. And so I think from an advice point of view, just to realize that if you feel that something is going on, a hospitalization or a period within a hospitalization that has nothing to do with the DNR status to either talk to your doctor or clinicians and say, no matter what happens, I want to be treated postoperatively for all these complications. Um, uh, and then once everything's resolved, you know, maybe go back to your DNR status. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for your time, Dr. Bakhtari, in explaining really important concepts for all of us, regardless of our, our cognitive function. Um, and if another study, if you put on another study, we'd love to have you back on the show. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Dementia Matters. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to be notified about upcoming episodes. You can also listen to our show by asking your smart speaker to play the Dementia Matters podcast. And please rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research, Education, and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode of Dementia Matters was produced by Rebecca Wazaleski and edited by Kaylin Rowerdink. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. To learn more about the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and Dementia Matters, check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. Follow us on Facebook at Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and find us on Twitter at Wisconsin ADRC. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.